the upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. going right here right now this is new generation declassified and you're listening to an all-new episode of new generation declassified exclusively here on the two-man power trip of wrestling podcasting empire if you didn't know by now my name is chad and every single week we take a walk back in time to the glorious time that was the wwf's new generation Looking at it from a different perspective, going back and putting on the old rose-colored glasses and seeing if this time period was as good as we remember as kids, or if we look back as a more polished uh, wrestling fan. Is this the era that everybody kind of forgets for a reason? Well, we're going to dive into that today. Looking at a different perspective, uh, oddly enough, always staying in the Northeast, maybe venturing out into the Midwest, but today I'm joined by another Chad chad of music city toys and collectibles one of the best wrestling and entertainment collectible vendors you're going to find uh and we're going to talk about what it was like in the new generation in the south but also we're going to dive into some wwf magazines because if there's something i know this guy knows a lot about it's wrestling magazines but chad i'm really happy to have you on tonight thanks for joining me Oh, well, thanks for having me. I'm uh, looking forward to diving into this time period. This uh, takes me back to my youth. And that's the way uh, That's the way we want to be. That's the place to be, uh, especially during this tenure. Now, we don't look at anything having to do with that attitude era, which technically doesn't exist in our world. Uh, the Federation years, we look back on very fondly, uh, but we're trying to kind of uh, shake the cobwebs of the, new gener- of the uh, Federation years. And we're, we're trying to establish our own identity in the new generation. Uh, but let's dive into you growing up in the South. Where Tell the people where you're from, uh, kind of your wrestling fan background. You know, I know you. You're, you're, you're a very knowledgeable wrestling fan. You know, you go back a long way. So why don't you tell the, uh, the listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, if, if they can't tell from my thick northern accent, uh, I was born and raised in Middle Tennessee, lived here my whole life, and uh, grew up, actually, oddly enough, grew up watching a lot of different territories because we had an old school satellite dish, which many people listening probably won't even know what I'm talking about, uh, but it was probably 1982, 83. Uh, we lived in a rural area on a farm, and there was no cable available, so I was raised by my great grandparents. My grandfather bought us a satellite dish. So we had this big, ugly fiberglass 16 foot diameter thing next to the barn that uh, would uh, pick up all these different stations and in different positions. And I stumbled across uh, a wild feed on a blank station one night of world class championship wrestling out of Dallas. Uh, saw some Florida championship wrestling. Um, of course, Memphis, I was watching anyway. Uh, big territory in this area, obviously. And then, of course, the uh, syndicated WWF programming. And uh, one little footnote, I happened to be watching the Madison Square Garden Network, uh, January 23rd, 1984, when uh, Hulk Hogan came in on the scene and defeated the Iron Sheik, became the WWF champion, and 
Uh, the rest, they say, is history. So uh, I taught my mom and it let me stay up late that night and watch uh, watch that on, on TV. And it was a school night. It was a Monday night. And uh, she did. And from there, I was hooked. And that led to LJN figures and, and everything that came <laughs> after. So pretty fun to look back and think about those days now. Yeah, absolutely. You know, those satellite dishes, uh, if anybody remembers what they looked like, you know, they were massive, uh, but they sure as hell got yep. the job done, especially for somebody in your area to watch the Madison Square Garden Network. You know, that in itself is ahead of its time. And, you know, for right. so many years, it was just, oh, my gosh, every month you had that MSG wrestling show on there. I mean, I've talked about it a million times on every podcast that I've done. You know, I look forward to that more than basically anything else because that was your pay-per-view. You know, we, we see now the, the model of monthly pay-per-views and dating all the way back to the mid-90s seeing that. No, it was Madison Square Garden every month, WWF. There was nothing else that could top that. And for you to have that on the dish, you know, that's pretty damn cool. I'm sure you were probably the spot <laughs> for a lot of your friends. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. Well, it was that, and we got the the Boston Garden shows on on Nesson, oh. the New England Sports Network. Uh, we got some of the stuff from the Spectrum in Philadelphia on Sports Channel Philadelphia. So we got a got a good taste of everything. You know, all the big shows and the syndicated shows. You know, they were all enhancement matches. So you got to see, you know, two main event top level guys going at it on these uh, these Garden shows and these other big shows. So it was really cool and and something different that you didn't get to see otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. And again, very, very cool. And I'm sure that's what kind of started you uh, <laughs> maybe down the tape trader uh, industry, huh? And taping all those uh, those great shows that you got on the dish. <laughs> Man, when I when I graduated from college and, and cleaned out all the stuff of mine that was left at my, my parents' house, I threw away probably, and I'm not exaggerating, oh. I threw away probably <laughs> probably 600 VHS tapes. Oh my gosh. I should I had, just hang up on you now. I, had, uh, <laughs> I know. I know. I think about that now and I think, why did I do that? But I, I had every episode of primetime wrestling. I had uh, all those garden, all those garden shows I recorded, uh, you know, all that stuff, just tons of stuff from the, the, uh, the mid eighties all the way to the, well, really to the Monday night wars. I had every nitro, every raw during that era. I had everything on tape and, and just threw it all away. Damn you. That's all I could say. Damn you. And it's different. And, and I'm, I'm a tape collector still. You know, I, I convert a lot of stuff. Uh, I plug it right into my laptop. I have a couple programs that I can run. I rip commercials. You know, I go back and rip sports clips and post them if I can. But, you know, we didn't think about that, you know, 10 years ago because we were like, oh, shit, we're carrying around these uh, or even 15 or 20 or however long it's been. You literally were like, oh, I'm tired of carrying these bulky things around. And for people who yeah. were like you or myself, who literally cataloged everything, you know, I've dumped them in different moves. I know I was like, all right, I'm going to get rid of this batch, but I'm going to keep this batch. And the next move, it's like, all right, I'm going to get rid of this batch, but I'm going to keep this batch. And I remember one time, one of the moves I, I had, I was like, look, I'm embarrassed with how much I have to box up. So I'm just going to dump it. And oh, man, I could kick myself for the last dump. That's all I could say. That was, I think the last dump was really the most of the wrestling stuff. And I'm going to say it was probably from about post- WCW, maybe 2001 to about 2005. But I'm talking, you know, all those like syndicated shows, you know, your heats, confidentials, all that stuff. That's the shit that I was like, man, I can't carry this around anymore. And I'm sure there's some of that now that's never going to be seen anywhere ever again. 
Oh yeah, yeah. And the and the businessman in me is is upset because I threw away all that Memphis footage and nobody else has it because they oh. recorded over their shows every week. So there, it doesn't even exist out there. And I'm just like, man, there's a treasure trove of stuff there that I threw away. So I don't know. I, I try not to think about it too much. <laughs> so what do you think about this era? Being a territory guy and watching everything, world-class, Memphis, WWF, NWA, Georgia, all these great territories that you know, you've seen. Let's take a look at this era. Ninety. We say it's about uh, early night. I say it's Monday Night Raw kicking off January 93. So about mm. Mm, early 97, really, I think when the Raw debut, uh, the Raw's war set debuts, that's pretty much that's the end yeah. of the new generation era. Uh, where were yeah. you at that time in terms of being a fan? And, you know, what did you think of this era from uh, a, a more journeyed territory fan? Yeah, well, from I say from probably 90, 91, I kind of fell out of it a little bit. Uh, came back in strong in 92 when Flair won the Royal Rumble. Uh, that was kind of the beginning of me really, really getting big, big back into it. Um, so I was there for that entire era, the Monday Night War or the Monday Night Raw debut. I remember watching the very first episode. Um, good old Rob Bartlett, who could forget. But, uh, you know, all that stuff uh, from that era, I watched every bit of it, the syndicated shows. Uh, all the pay-per-views, we were ordering the pay-per-views on our satellite, so I was seeing everything. You know, everything WWF from that era, I didn't miss any of it. Who's your uh, your MVP of this era? Who's the guy that you were like, all right, anytime this guy's on the screen, I'm uh, I'm all in. Yeah, I was, I, you know, I was always a big Bret Hart guy. You know, Bret gets a lot of flack for, you know, they say he's bitter, that he's whatever now, but, uh, you know, very few people could tell a story inside the ring like Bret Hart and very few people could take any opponent and bring them up a level to have a really great match. And I think that was part of his genius and part of his, uh, you know, his abilities is that he made everyone better that he was in the ring with. And, and always like Bret, you know, Sean started to uh, come into his own during this time as intercontinental champion. And they kind of sort of set the path for what would happen between those two the next few years. But, uh, you know, I always loved Brett. Brett was uh, Brett was my guy during that era. Oh, you can't go wrong uh, with Brett. And you know, I, I always I, I loved him at the time, but I, I always tend to go back to look at a lot of what Brett did. And and what I always love about Brett is the believability as a champion. And you really did think that Bret Hart was the WWF champion. I guess in a similar way that you think of Hulk Hogan as the WWF champion. But I don't know why Brett as the champion. It just kind of goes together like uh, peanut butter and jelly for this era because he seems to be the definitive guy that we look at as like, all right, that's the champ of that era, and he was every bit of a champion. Yeah, oh, for sure. And, and to me, you know, everybody talks about the the bigger matches he had. My Two of my favorite matches that he had during this era was the 93 Royal Rumble against Razor Ramon. That was a really yeah. good match. That's one that a lot of people don't talk about, so I feel like it's underrated. And then uh, there was a match on Raw, him against the one, two, three kid, which is the match that really put Sean Waltman on the map uh, because he went toe to toe with Brett and Brett, you know, got the win. But it's a it's a classic. Uh, it's a master class in how to ele ele elevate a guy in a loss because he because one, two, three kid came out of that match on a whole other level. And, and he says that himself. I've seen him tweet that and talk about that match. But those are two of, of Brett's matches that come to mind that a lot of people don't talk about, but are two of my favorites. But yeah, anytime he was in there with, with, uh, 
almost anyone you can count on it being really good and and uh you know it kind of bothers me i guess now that people look at his legacy a little differently because of everything that's happened uh with him and you know since the montreal screw job and the wcw debacle and all that that ended his career uh but you know i think that if you're looking at at the top guys from especially wwf during this era i mean he's he's got to be at the top of that list Oh yeah, absolutely. He's uh, he's basically he's to me is the guy. But we kind of break it down with every uh, show that passes. It's like, all right, there was the core five guys uh, from that era. It's Brett, it's Undertaker, it's Diesel, it's Razor Ramon, and Shawn Michaels. And really, I mean, if we look at a deep dive into the marketing, and we talked about it last week with the Coliseum video uh, mer- exclusive merchandise, it's basically those core five guys. Uh, maybe throw in a Lex Luger every so often, but those core five guys, but Brett really being uh, the leader of the pack. I'd be very curious to get your uh, answer for this one. How about a guy like Jerry Lawler? Because obviously, you know, you've got the exposure to him in Memphis that I didn't have to him in, uh, you know, New Jersey, but obviously I knew who he was. I knew everything he did. I read the PWIs. I always saw he was on top of the USWA or wherever promotion was open at the time. Um, what was it like to watch him on both products at the same time? That was the first time that I saw a guy be portrayed as one thing on one show and something totally different on the other show. Because in Memphis, he was a huge baby face and had right. been for, you know, he started out as a heel in the seventies, but by this time, you know, he had been a baby face for 15 years on top and, and was the guy, you know, he was, he was the Hulk Hogan of Memphis, you know, and, and to see him on WWF programming in a very different role, it was it was mind blowing for me, you know. And I've I've talked to other guys like uh, uh, the Patriot Dale Wilkes, friend of mine. And of course, he had the feud with Brett in '97 when the Hart Foundation came along and and or reformed, I guess. And Brett had done the you know turn his back on America and was pro Canada and all that. Yeah. And you know he talked about what a dynamic it was to be such a huge baby face here in the States. But when they went to Canada, you know, he was having to get police escorts back to his hotel room. <laughs> it's crazy. Killing, you know? So it's, you know, it's crazy to think, but, but that, that uh, Lawler's tenure in the WWF during this time was really the first time I'd sort of been exposed to that. So it's really, it was really unique. And uh, I don't know that anything like that has, has really been done very often since. No, no, it's it's very, very rare. But I mean, with Lawler, it was not even like it was a hidden thing. I mean, like I said, you pick up the magazine and my favorite thing at the time was you'd go to the back of PWI and you'd look yeah. at the rankings. You'd see who's the top contenders and you'd be like, all right, let's see. I know this guy from WCW. I know this guy from the WWF. I know this guy. I don't know what ECW is yet, but I'll get to that in a few years. Um, <laughs> you, you see all these different names and Lawler. Yeah, it's like, holy crap. Babyface in Memphis. The probably most hated heel, maybe one and two with an Owen Hart for the entire duration of the new generation era. Um, but fascinating that you could see that. So, and I don't want to dive into it now, but I will. And maybe you can come back for this when I finally decide to cover it. But those Mick Memphis shows when uh, Vince McMahon and the WWF superstars come to the USWA in this era, they're the bad guys, they're the heels. Right talking right. macho man owen hart high energy owen hart 
uh, Brett, you know, um, I, I think I'm, oh man, well, obviously Vince, you know, but that handful of guys that were, were coming down. Oh, giant Gonzalez aligning with like macho man. Come on. That wasn't <laughs> happening at all, but you got to see that. What do you remember about the, uh, the, the quote Mick, Mick Memphis storyline? Oh, that it was, uh, it's like a fever dream, you know, because <laughs> Vince finally, and I guess that was probably the first time he had sort of openly admitted that he was the, the owner of the WWF, you know, that's yeah. something that on WWF programming, he was just the lead announcer, you know, it, it was never really discussed at that point. So when he comes to Memphis as the heel, and it's really the, the kind of the origins for the Mr. McMahon character that we would see in the Attitude Era, but it was, it was so different. Like, it, I don't know. It's it's hard to put into words how different it was to see that. But, yeah, it's like you're invading the the, the, the home field territory here, and, and uh, you're automatically going to be a heel. So it, it, people bought into it hook, line, and sinker. It was great. It was really the last little great run of business that the Memphis Territory did, which it hung around until the late 90s. Yeah. Uh, probably one of the last territories to, to, to be – to be a in existence, really that in Smoky Mountain, but uh, both here, both here in Tennessee, ironically. But uh, but yeah, it was uh, it was just really weird to see. First of all, them openly admit that Vince was the owner, and then to see him portray that character, which was so different than anything we'd ever seen on WWF programming. Oh my gosh, it is like if you can go back and watch it, and I'm not sure how much is still on YouTube, but I mean, the first time I saw it on YouTube when YouTube was new, I mean that was like. Oh my gosh. Cause I remember reading about it and seeing some footage here or there. I know there was the one um, uh, compilation DVD in the early two thousands that came out that had one of the macho man, uh, Jerry Lawler matches on it. And it was just like, what, <laughs> where, yeah. where is this coming from? I don't remember it, but it looks legit to me, but Oh, it's so good. And I want to cover it like in multiple parts and like really thorough and really detailed, uh, so maybe you'll be a, a special consultant uh, to that, having had a bird's eye uh, view for it. But again, fascinating to me to have somebody from another territory of the United States during this era. Now, how about shows? Did you get to go to, to any house shows or any TV tapings during the new generation years? Uh, no, I I went to a WWF house show in 1988. It was a, It was when they were so hot, they were running three towns a night yeah. on the weekends and my hometown of Cookville, Tennessee was uh, on the campus of Tennessee tech university, my alma mater. Uh, they, uh, they came and did a show and it was a, of course a sea town. Uh, so the main event was the junkyard dog and outlaw Ron Bass. So that was, oh, the, wow. star power. <laughs> that, that was the star power we were given. So uh, we, and the Bolsheviks and young stallions, Sherry Martell was on the card, Sam Houston and Nanny Davis. You know, it, was, it was the sea level town for sure. But, uh, it was just cool to see because it was the first time I had seen uh, a lot of those uh, folks in person being a young fan. You know, I was, what, 11 years old then. Right. And then uh, sitting on the front row for this WWF. I remember, I still remember walking in and seeing the WWF ring for the first time with the turnbuckles, with the, the logo embroidered on them, you know, and just seeing the whole thing. It was just it was captivating. And, and uh, that that show I went to was in 88. And then I didn't go to another uh, WWF show until 96. Okay. So I didn't, I didn't see well, that any. falls into our era. The, the 96 well, is our, our, our era. So you could elaborate more on that one. Yeah, it was, it was fall of 96. So we had undertaker mankind was the, the big deal. They had a uh, casket match on that show. Sean invader uh, worked on that show. So it was, it was the fallout after SummerSlam 96 basically. Okay. Uh, it was probably, I think September somewhere around there. 
uh, uh, Goldust and Sid had a match, Smoking Guns, uh, and the uh, the the uh, Jacob and Eli Blue, the Blue bro- the Blue Brothers. <laughs> Very There's nice. There's a deep cut for you. Uh, yeah, so you know, and Farouk and Sonny were there. I mean, it was it was that era. Uh, just, you know, maybe a year or so before the Attitude Era really ramped up. But it was it was kind of the the tail end of the new generation, I guess. Yeah, it's basically borderline Attitude. It's uh, yeah. as we were getting – I mean, we've covered a lot of 96 stuff. I mean, we've covered, you know, Livewire. We've covered um, uh, Paul Bearer's turn and all that stuff. So we've delved into 96, not to the extent of the early part, the 93s and 94s, uh, but still, nonetheless, I mean, a fascinating time to watch this product because they were fighting for their life at that point in 96. Uh, but <laughs> I just got to go back to your show in 88. So you got the C-Town. So somewhere else in America, you know, Andre the Giant was taking on uh, Hacksaw Jim Duggan and uh, Demolition was battling the powers of pain. And Hulk Hogan was probably suplexing the uh, the big boss man off the top of the cage. <laughs> Right, right, yeah. We get, we get, uh, we get the. Uh, we had two enhancement matches to open the night. If that tells you anything about this show, but uh, I, I do remember visiting the merchandise stand and get, picking That's up some posters. Going next, right. yeah. Uh, wait, don't jump ahead. Posters. Yeah, so, so yeah, it was, it was, it was a fun night. I, it was a good memory, anyway. Don't don't jump ahead. That was my next question because that's the thing I've talked about. Anytime we talk about house shows or pay-per-views and you're live in attendance and you go to that merch stand and I could talk about, you know, the venues like Madison Square Garden or the Meadowlands Arena and you had specific spots that you could go to for the merch at Madison Square Garden. You literally walk in through the main entrance outside of uh, 34th Street and there's the first chance that you have to get stuff. And usually Back in the day, I mean, it was you know two hundred people deep. You could barely see what was on the uh, the marquee of the uh, the little merch block that they had at the Meadowlands. It was a little easier because they had them. You know, every uh, you know thirty feet, you just run to the next one if you got a free spot. Uh, what's a young Chad going looking for at the uh, the merchandise stand? Is he's getting ready? Is he getting the program? Does he have to get a T shirt? Is he getting foam fingers? What's your uh, your go to? Well, I was, I guess I was a weird kid because most kids would want a foam finger or a shirt or something like that. But I, I was always a, a, a physical media guy. So I love magazines. I loved, uh, you know, VHS tapes, like we talked about that kind of stuff. So I, that night I ended up getting, uh, I got the program, obviously uh, I got a, a, a set of uh, postcards Oh, with, uh, with some cool Steve Taylor photography on there. And then uh, got a uh, Macho Man poster, which was like a door-sized poster, which ended up going up in my my room on the closet door the next day. So uh, that was that was my haul from that particular event. I wasn't I wasn't interested in T-shirts or any of that stuff. If they, if they had LJN figures, I'd have probably been all over that. But uh, but yeah, I got the uh, the poster, the, uh, the the program, and the uh, the postcards. That was my that was my haul for the evening. <laughs> They were sitting in the uh, the merchandise department at uh, Titan Tower, and they said, you know, should we bring those uh, black-carded LJN figures that we can't give away? They're like, should we bring them to the yeah. house shows, especially those sea towns where people are dying for them? And they're like, no, nah, ship them to Canada. We don't want any here in the United States. <laughs> yeah, we missed out on that one for sure. Oh, my gosh. How about a 96? Same thing? You're going for the program? 
Uh, yeah, always, every time, every time I went to a big event, if it was a TV taping, a house show, a pay-per-view, whatever it was, I always got the program. So yeah, I got another program there. Uh, I ended up, I did get a t-shirt at that one, I believe. I believe that's uh, about an Undertaker t-shirt. Um, and I think that was probably it, uh, for that, for that one. And by that time I was, you know, I was in college. I was too cool for a lot of stuff. So, uh, you know, my, my tastes had changed, I guess, but I did get a shirt and a program. So. Hey, you're a market heart, so you should have just let yourself uh, run wild uh, for sure. Uh, so let's talk about that. I have it as, you know, us talking about WWF magazines, but the programs are such a huge part of the experience. And I, I've covered them a little bit before. You know, you get your insert with the card rundown. It's telling you where you can watch your local uh, wrestling, which you already knew that anyway. So I never understood why they put that on there. Like who's going to a house show but doesn't know where to watch the TV? Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's uh, that's that's kind of a an old school thing that's gone by the wayside somewhat. But that was always an integral part of every show, and not not only for the fans, but for the promotion. You know, the program sales were always huge. That was a big revenue stream, and I think now probably that's pretty much dried up and gone away for the most part. But uh, yeah, it was every time. Like I said, every time I went, and I actually found uh, just the other day. I was going through some stuff in my office and I found the, the lineup sheets from, from all the programs oh, that had uh, all the matches and stuff on there. Of course I had in my little handwriting back then had filled in the results of every single match, but uh, it was cool to have and just see and, and go back and, and look at that stuff now. But uh, yeah, that's, that's something I always, always did was pick up a program. So up till about, 94 95 and this is probably where i could use your expertise being you know a uh, a well-respected magazine vendor and you know i've seen jim Cornette uh sift through your bins on a few occasions looking for some of those rarities that he wants to add to his own personal collection but around 94 95 the the program at the house shows went from being much more specific on exclusive content to basically being a retread and a minor edition of the WWF magazine. Do you have a, a better indication on when that switch would have happened? Yeah, it was right around. It was probably, probably happened sometime in 93. Oh, um, was it really that early? Wow. Okay. But yeah, you'll, you'll probably see some in 93, but yeah, 94, 95 for sure, because that was the extreme as, as we know now, going back, that was the extreme uh, lean years financially when they took the water coolers out of Titan Towers and, yeah. and uh, all the executives had to take pay cuts and J.J. Dillon left and, you know, all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, th that was just another cost-cutting uh, thing, I'm sure. And if you look, uh, it's much harder to find the magazine itself from 94, 95, uh, than any of the other years of the 90s. Even back, you'd find 80s magazines easier than you can find 94, 95, some month issues. So they had cut the the printing way back and the circulation was way back. The subscriptions were way down, I'm sure, too. So yeah, it was it was definitely during that time period that, uh, that they did a lot of that stuff as a cost-cutting measure. Yeah, I was never a subscription guy. I always went to the uh, the supermarket, and you know that was basically the reward: help mom shop, get the magazine. And, and I had a pretty goddamn extensive uh, collection at one point. That you know, obviously, you know, it's all gone now. But um, in talking to other people who had subscriptions, you know, they were basically uh, you subscribe, you subscribe for you know uh, basically the full run of the magazine because 
that was one of the, really the only ways you could get it. Now, that also could be a Southern versus Northern thing because I remember it still being around in a lot of places. And you could go to a newsstand and still find it if you were in the mall or if you were in New York City, you'd see it on the uh, you know the corner newsstand. Uh, that could also maybe be something regional, which you know I'm sure WWF Northeast, it could be something that plays into it. Um, but the programs really being, especially from a collector point of view, you're basically just collecting the cover. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the content was like you said, a rehash of magazine articles and things of that nature. So you, you, you wanted the cover and you wanted the lineup sheet is basically what you were getting. Uh, they changed it up a little bit too in terms of how they like published the magazine. Um, they kind of went away from you know the the biannual uh, superstars. Uh, you know, I think they did one, two, and three. By this mm. time, that was cut out. Uh, they brought up posters, uh, which I mean, you and I are looking at it right now, but they're not seeing it. They had a little right. run of uh, poster magazines. Um, obviously, the uh, the the pay per views would get their own. Uh, program with a rundown that was sold in the arena, but some of the newsstands also got those as well, so you get more of an abbreviated pay-per-view uh, version, but the magazine itself, you know, they put it in some sealed uh, packaging, but all you were really getting was the merchandise catalog. Uh, mm -hmm. From your point of view, when you see the magazines from that era, do you see them sealed still, or do you just see the loose ones and and maybe you know they're they're not in the best condition? Like where from a a collector's point of view, where are you seeing some of these magazines? Yeah, very very rarely do you find any still sealed. Most of them are all going to be open, having been read, uh, varying degrees of wear on them. But yeah, it's uh, you don't see them sealed very often. And another another thing during that time was the spotlight magazines. You know, they yes. came out. In, uh, late 80s and ran all the way into the mid 90s. So that was another thing that was like a, a biographical type uh, magazine devoted to one wrestler and it had a big post double sided poster inside. Those are highly collectible now. But uh, yeah, there, there was uh, there was definitely some changes going on in the in the print media side of things and, and uh, circulation wise and quality, I guess, too. Yeah, those got a little lean themselves because they, they put them out pretty regularly in the late 80s, early 90s. But then, you know, there's a Lex Luger. There's a Diesel. I think there's a second Hulk Hogan. There might be two Bret Hart's out there. But they went from being fairly regular to, like, you know, pre being pretty scarce themselves, which I always thought once you saw that one out there, like, that's how you knew the guy made it because <laughs> they right. got their own special magazine. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that was it. Then and, and it it was probably about ninety three when those kind ninety three ninety four when those went away because I remember Luger had one like you said he was probably one of the last guys. Uh, Sid had one. Well, Diesel had one, so probably maybe ninety five or so. But yeah, yeah. they they, they kind of fizzled out around the same time that you saw a lot of changes in the other magazine. Just looking at some of these covers as, you know, I'm going through the Google as you and I are looking at the screen, you know, you see the classic Jordan uh, Lex Luger cover where they're at some golf tournament where they probably right. just tap Jordan on the shoulder like, hey, take a quick picture. He had no idea who he was posing with. Yeah. In that <laughs> yeah, it's just it's very funny. And that's on the cover there. Crush. That was a pretty uh, that was a pretty big one. If you had this one back in the day, Crush was getting that uh, macho man. Uh, Rob leading to WrestleMania, uh, the posters. I mean, there's, I'm seeing 10 and 11 here. I didn't realize there was even that many. Um, this is a classic one here. So there's, uh, the WrestleMania 10 build. Now I had, I have a similar one still, um, that 
is almost the content of this magazine, but it's a WrestleMania 10 cover. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know if you, you recall this one. It's an orange cover, and it's yep. got the participants of WrestleMania 10. But I am almost positive, and I just I haven't looked at them in 25 years, but I think the content of that magazine is close to the one that I'm looking at here, which just has Brett uh, Yoko and uh, the man made in the USA, Lex Luger. Um, but that orange one specifically, again, another one of those kind of weird you know, not spotlights, not special editions, just like a, an oddball poll that they threw out on the newsstands around WrestleMania time, but didn't really ever do it again. Yeah, yeah, that was, I guess, a variant collectible cover, whatever they called it. But, you know, you saw a lot during this time, too, of different covers for international magazines. Yes. So the, the WF magazine in Europe would have a totally different cover for July than the U.S. version. And uh, the U.K. got hardcover annuals, which were hardcover books. Right. That sort of summarized for the year of, of different articles, all the, the big events that happened during the year. Those are highly collectible now. So, yeah, you saw some some stuff like that internationally. And then you saw some uh, collectible covers and then later led to like the, the inserts, the trading card inserts and things of that nature. So, yeah, we'll double back to the cards. Let's talk about the international. Uh, what do you see from that as the collectability? Are they harder to come by because of the, you know, the releases? Do you see them more sold? Do you have to go to like an a European uh, eBay dealer to get, you know, your international magazines or have they kind of made their way into the States? Uh, you don't see them very often. And, and most of the time when you see them for sale, it is someone in the UK or Germany that has them. So that's, uh, that's predominantly where they still exist. Not a lot of them have made it to the, to the States compared to the U S releases, but I had a full run of the hardcover annuals that I just sold probably six months ago. And people still love that stuff because they've never, they don't, they've never seen it here. You know, they remember growing up and going to the newsstand or going to the supermarket and seeing the, the, the issue that everybody's familiar with the cover that when they see it now, but they didn't see this stuff because it was right. across the pond. So, you know, it's uh, it's highly collectible and, and, and anything from that, I call golden era, you know, from, from the eighties and early nineties is, is very collectible today. So yeah, there's definitely a market for that stuff. And a lot of that stuff still is, is big of a company as the WWF was. A lot of it is still regionalized to certain areas in certain countries. Are the, uh, the cover stars at the time, is it the, you know, like I said, the core five, or are we seeing some more of like the side, uh, undercard guys that didn't really get the love in the States getting, uh, some magazine, uh, cover action. Like, am I am I going to find a Marty Jannetty uh, uh, magazine cover floating around Germany somewhere? <laughs> there's that. There's that Mantar cover that everybody's looking for. <laughs> now. There's there's, uh, there's there's basically the same guys, just different different photos. Uh, you'll see a lot of Bret Hart because you know he was big in, in yeah. the UK and Europe, so uh, that type of stuff. But it's it's basically your same guys. Maybe a little bit of a photo. If there's an international guy at the time that was that was coming up to Tonka was big in Europe. So he was featured a lot. Hmm. Um, uh, trying to think if there's any that, that odd, odd ones that would, we didn't see a lot of here, but it was, it was basically your same guys for the most part. What surprised you the most about, I guess the long-term collectability about the magazines? Well, everything in, in the world of collectibles, no matter if it's wrestling or sports or, anything, whatever you collect, it's, uh, it plays off nostalgia and it plays off you having fond memories of your childhood and what you enjoyed at the time growing up and how you remember things growing up. And so 
that's what people are looking for. They remember these covers. They remember, you know, where they were when such and such happened or this match happened or this guy turned or whatever it was. And, uh, you know, it's like a song. You can hear a certain song and you can think it reminds you of your senior year of high school or it reminds you of some fun party you went to or some vacation you went on with your friends or something, you know. So these these things are like moments in time. It's the same concept. You know, it reminds people of, a, of an era uh, from from their earlier days that they fondly remember. So it doesn't surprise me at all that uh, the magazines are still highly collectible and actually after going through a dip for a few years, the last couple of years, uh, print media has has really grown in collectability as far as wrestling magazines go. And I'm seeing a big jump in the uh, the VHS market now of of, yes. the, of the company produced not the not, not me recording them on my VCR, but the uh, the company produced releases, and some of those are kind of rare and valuable now. So, all, you know, physical media will live forever because it's a it's a it's a reminder of a different time because we don't have that anymore. Everything's digital now, you know, we're carrying around computers and video cameras in our pocket every day. So there's no, there's no need in, in some ways for all that, but you'll always have your, your folks that remember that time or that want to look back at that time that want to collect those things. So it's really cool to see that it's staying alive because the magazines were such a staple of wrestling for so long uh, that now that it's just something that's kind of gone by the wayside, but I'm glad to see that people still appreciate them anyway. And, and I'll tell you again, and you know, not to put you over because I don't want your ego to uh, hit the doorway on the way out of here. But that's what I love about your, you know, setup and how you have the, the, you know, the bins with the or the, you know, the old school boxes, the comic boxes of the magazines. Because I love that, and to see that that's still something that people want to collect is awesome. And also the same thing with the videos, because you know, as I, that that is how I became a fan was because of the Coliseum videos and some of the best, um, uh, you know, episodes of this show so far in terms of um, the response have been about Coliseum video. Cause there's something about it that people still, you know, resonate and, and really love, um, you know, it's something that kind of sits with them to me. It, it, it's it's a testament to how they did things then more than anything. And if Coliseum videos and the videos are still getting a little bit of love, there's been dips. I mean, I had a great collection. I converted it and I sold it. And that was, you know, again, I kicked myself on a few of them, but what are you going to do? I have them on DVD. And of course that DVD is somewhere in a, uh, in a book. And, <laughs> you know, I see now a couple years ago, I picked up a few that were very cheap. But again, looking at prices, they're going back up. And it's just it's the end of that ebb and flow of pricing. Um, with the magazines, though, it just seems like now with the more conventions and the more signings that, that pop up, you see the magazines really becoming high in demand. And even for a dealer, if you say, hey, I've got Ken Patera coming in, well, you go right to eBay to see how many Ken Pateras that you can find. And the prices are astronomical <laughs> just right. to get one copy of WWF magazine. And he's like, well, I can't realistically do that from a black versus red perspective. But have you seen that too, from you saying like, oh, I got to get so-and-so on a magazine. And now that you're actually having to like pay for them rather than, you know, maybe find a better deal. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's become increasingly tougher for me to keep these things stocked, especially the late eighties editions uh, and the mid nineties, like this era we're talking about now. Uh, it's, it's very hard to keep in stock. So I've seen a, I've seen a big change in that, you know, before for years, you know, you'd see 
piles of these things everywhere for sale and you just like ah, whatever you know you think anything about it and now i wish man i would have bought every one of those you know but uh, hindsight's 2020 but yeah for sure the, the conventions and signings and stuff have, have made a huge huge impact on the sale of, of a lot of that stuff because some of the guys like you you know you mentioned ken patera for example uh you know he's a guy that's had had a long great career uh, but but only ever had what two action figures? You had an LJN yeah. and, a, and a Jack's Classic Superstar. So, and both are expensive and rare. So, you know you can you can pick up a copy of the August '87 WWF magazine or whatever it is that he's on the cover and uh, and get that signed and and uh, have a really cool item there. So, because the cover shots, the photography uh, was was what sold it. You know, you saw yeah. photos on the cover that you didn't see used anywhere else. So. You know, and I've mentioned Steve Taylor earlier. A lot of that was his work, but uh, you know, those those are just iconic images that anyone who was a fan of that era that grew up during that time remember. So uh, yeah, there's there's definitely definitely the conventions have have helped the magazine sales for sure. And I and I try at every show that I do to have a huge selection of show guests. So whoever's at that particular show signing that day, whoever's appearing, you know, I'll try to have some magazines, some action figures. Uh, trading car, whatever, whatever I can come up with. Uh, Cause some guys, believe it or not, don't have a lot of merch from that, that were stars, you know, that worked on top for years. You know, this is like, how, how did you not have more stuff, you know? Uh, yep. So, but, uh, but, you know, I always try to, that's, that's like one of the things that draws people to our booth at shows is we're known to have a whole table or two, a big display of show guests and they want to get something unique, something to get signed. So, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's kind of the way it is now. You know, the magazines are one of the, the staples of that. Yeah, it really is. And, uh, you know, I, I do love that about the conventions, although uh, there hasn't been a good one in a good year plus, you know, <laughs> with everything yeah. going on. It's, uh, it's still one of those things I look forward to seeing. Now, I have one on the screen that I want to talk about before we uh, we say goodbye. But one more thing that I want to talk about merchandise wise that I know you would have a really great perspective on is the publicity photos and the promo shots. Now, for okay. the 80s, they're a little bit more available. You can still find them, but they're, you know, the black and whites, the colors are getting harder to find. This era seems like it is like a puzzle to put together uh, a complete run because there were so many different ones issued. There's so many different little, uh, you know, uh, the Daily News had their own if they were guy was doing a signing or, you know, Jimmy's uh, Tire Depot had one if Shawn uh, <laughs> Michaels was doing a signing. How about from the promos? How do you see the collectability uh, of the promos uh, thus far in your uh, your your run here as a premier wrestling vendor? <laughs> yeah, the promo photos are something that, again, a lot of times featured photography, featured shots that you didn't see anywhere else. And so that's the appeal there to get an original promo photo and have it signed is a, is a cool thing in the collectibles world. Uh, but yeah, you're right. This this time period in the mid '90s here, uh, you know, not even just the obscure characters, but some of the, the the top guys, the main event guys. There are certain shots that are impossible to find, and the market and the the collector base of the promo photos is smaller than that of the magazines and some of the other stuff. But but the people that collect those, man, they go hard. They collect. They really collect them, and they go after every single one of them. And I've seen. Uh, some promo photos, just plain eight by 10, eight and a half by 11, whatever they happen to be, uh, you know, sell for hundreds and hundreds of dollars because that particular one's so rare. So it's, 
it's definitely something that people are more aware of now. I feel like again, because of conventions, but the, the overall collector base is a lot smaller, but it is die hard and, and they will pay for rare items. Oh my gosh. It's crazy. I, I mean, I kind of quietly sit and look at all these pages, you know, I'm not really a big commenter, but oh my goodness gracious to see what some of these guys pay for these, uh, these photos. It's, it's kind of shocking. Uh, I could never put out for one item like that as much as I would need it. I don't, I'm the bargain guy. I always like to fall into a deal. So I give him respect, but oh my gosh, you see, you know, uh, Hey, uh, did you know that Bret Hart did a signing, you know, at Blockbuster Video in Sherman Oaks, California in 1995? Well, here's a different promo photo with their logo on it that you've never seen before. And people are like, oh, I'll give you $250 for it. I'll give you $300. It's like, damn. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 definitely crazy. It's crazy stuff. But, you know, it's it's one of those things, again, that I, I feel like it's easier to collect the magazines because there's 12 a year and you know which ones you're missing. Right. And it's easy to keep track of, but it's like with the promo photos, it's like there's new ones discovered all the time, or there's some that were released for such a short time or not used because I mean, other than to be sent to the media for whatever reason, or to use for an appearance, why would you even have a promo photo? Right. So I mean, why were they produced? You know? So, you know, it's not like some of these guys were out making a lot of appearances and doing signings, you know? So it's, it's some of these were such a short run and weren't, weren't, printed very many at all so there's uh, there's definitely some value to some of them that you wouldn't think would be worth very much probably about three or four years ago i was at a show with coco beware and we were in his hotel room and he was like do you have any pictures and i said yes i do he said okay well if you need any extras he goes i got some in my bag and he opens up his bag and he goes uh, yeah he goes i have these uh, high energy pictures that vince gave us he goes he gave half the stack to me and half the stack to owen he goes this is all i have left i was like uh put those back in your bag <laughs> i was like eh, we're not going to use those tonight but don't put them in your bag again i said uh those those are are, are going to be extremely extremely sought after in a few years and i was right uh yeah. didn't think to make a deal with coco on the spot because i think my my shock and awe was uh was so crazy uh at that point but uh nonetheless uh the trading cards inside the magazine you know i didn't think to keep them i'd rip them out you know i put them in my book i put them in my box uh i've seen complete you know uncut sheets i've seen them still in the magazines how hard are they to come by in terms of a magazine you might pull in a collection of you know 50 All right well well you know from being a sports card guy that condition is everything and with these being distributed as, as sheets inside the magazine that were perforated, you had to tear them apart. Uh, it's very difficult to find any that aren't, you know, full of creases or some issues where people have flipped through. The, even they didn't take them out. They flipped through the magazine, folded the magazine in half, rolled the magazine up, whatever they did uh, that damaged these cards inside. So uh, if you can get certain ones that uh, that you can and I, I don't have the uh, the steady hand to do it, but if you can tear them apart and somehow get them graded and get a high grade, I mean, you're looking at thousands of dollars for some of these things. And crazy, and, uh, it, yeah, it's insane. The wrestling trading card market has went like all trading cards has gone crazy. But there's some of these obscure ones and and uh, from from back in that era that definitely uh, definitely command a high premium on the secondary market these days. 
I mean, you never would have thought it. And you see people who didn't get cards. And this is one thing we talked about last week, you know, specifically Alundra Blaze, who was the WWF women's champion for so long. And, you know, three title reigns in you know, basically a year and a half. Uh, She has a couple of those magazine cards. She has a pog, but you see, you know, Bull Nakano has a card, you know, Bob Backlund has a few cards. Uh, you know, we see more obscure. I was joking before about Marty Jannetty. Marty Jannetty's got a couple of those cards. You see more of the undercard guys that don't have a lot of merchandise from that, from that era have these trading cards. But like you said, finding them without a rip, finding them without, you know, a, a major crease because they just folded it in their pocket is extremely hard. And if you do follow graded card sales, it's like the wrestling all-star cards and the magazine cards are like neck and neck these days. Right. Well, you, you know, the, you saw the, or I don't know if you saw or not recently, the, uh, the rock is uh quote unquote rookie card, which is a college football card from the university of Miami that was distributed like that. It was a perforated card that was torn out of a magazine or some type of publication and a, a gym mint 10 sold for what was it? 40, $45,000. Oh, I didn't even like. see that, that, but I believe it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's the same, same phenomenon, you know, it's, uh, it's all about uh, rarity and, and condition. And, uh, you know, like you said, you mentioned him earlier, Duke, the dumpster grossy, he had a card. That's probably the only piece of licensed merchandise he had, you know, he wasn't ever on the magazine cover. He had no action figures, uh, but he's a guy that's active on the convention scene. So, are you going to get a standard eight by 10 sign that anybody could get, or are you going to get something unique sign? Yeah. So that's, that again has helped drive the sales of some of these. So cool. And if you have those, you know, save them. <laughs> if you can get them. So if you can get a professional to uh, take it apart, grade it if you can, but uh, yeah, never again, never would have thought. Cause it was just, you know, it was just one of those things you pulled out. Last thing I want to just talk about before we, uh, we say goodbye and I talk about your big uh, grand opening you have and all the other cool stuff you got going on. This one I've seen via, you know, eBay. I've seen people post about it before. This is a program from the final Hulkamania tour right before he exited the WWF in 1993. So have you ever seen this magazine that I have here on the screen? This it looks to be from the Hulkamania tour when Hulk Hogan was uh, getting ready to exit the WWF. I'm not sure what part of the uh, the world it's from, but have you ever physically seen this magazine before? I have not. I have seen pictures like this online, uh, but I have not seen uh, seen it in person ever. It's uh, looks to be, I'm going to say maybe German. I think it's German. You know, you scroll through the this this hoss of wrestling uh, for our German <laughs> listeners uh, has a, a good breakdown of what it looks like inside. It's like a Hulkamania retrospective, mm -hmm. uh, some little blurbs about each superstar. So obviously, you see, it's a, a souvenir program. These yeah. tours only came around maybe once a year, but they got some pretty damn cool merch uh, on the inside of this magazine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know sure. what the hell that is. I can't speak German, but it looks cool. Uh, here, right, look at this. Here's some wrestling trading cards. Uh, right here are stickers, I think. Yeah. Have you have you ever seen these before? Are those Merlin? Is that the brand? Can you see on there? I can't tell if it's Merlin. I mean, we talked about Merlin on the show last week. I don't yeah. know if this is Merlin, and I've never seen that pack with Brett on the uh, the cover. Yeah, it's a Merlin, pack. Merlin, uh, Merlin and Panini would be your two sticker makers during that time, so it's probably one or the other. Yeah, it doesn't have it in the uh, the ad print there. I don't, and I also have no clue who the predator was. <laughs> who the hell is that? Wow, that's interesting. 
who the hell was the predator in 1993? <laughs> I, heard, I heard something about that not long ago, and I can't remember who it was now. But I, I, somebody, it might have been on, might have been on Bruce Pritchard. It was on a podcast. Somebody was talking about that short-lived gimmick. He's uh, not a big gentleman. Uh, yeah. He's uh, he's got like a leopard print uh, mask. I would have called him maybe the leopard. And I'm going to tell you who it was. The WWF Predator 1993 was Horace Hogan. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. Yes, yes. That's why I was trying to think of who it was. Yeah. Yep. Holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, learn um, something new every day on New Generation Declassified. That's going to be something the Chadster is going to be digging into uh, yeah. a little bit later. There's WrestleMania, the album. Oh, there's uh, terrific Terry Taylor and Brother Brudide. Now look at this thing here on the back page, uh, adjacent to the uh, the the European releases here of the Coliseum videos. What the hell is this thing? Is this a card game? Because I don't know what it is, but if Crush made the cover on one of them, I think that's pretty awesome. <laughs> wow, that is pretty cool. Yeah, and it was it was Babyface Crush too. I mean, we got. Uh, it looks like it could be Valentine's. <laughs> I think that's what I think that's what it is. I believe it's. You, you think it's Valentine's? Yeah, Valentine boxes with Bret Hart, The Undertaker, Hulk Hogan, and Kona freaking Crush on yeah. the cover of the Valentine box. Yeah, you know, if you if you were a teenager during that time period and you wanted to win the heart of your one true love, you would definitely give them the giant Gonzalez Valentine. <laughs> I mean, look at that. Papa Shango, he made it into this set. And uh, this, see, this is what I'm talking about with the European merch. You right. get to see people that wouldn't necessarily be on the uh, front and center spots. And uh, here you go. We see Crush. I would ne not say Crush, Giant Gonzalez, and Papa Shango, uh, and even Doink. And that's heel Doink at this point being a uh, spotlighted uh, superstar. Very cool. Yeah, very unique. G German WWF Valentines. Now that's something I would love to see uh, at a signing uh, very soon. All right, Chad, before we say goodbye here, uh, please tell the listeners of the uh, new generation declassified all the cool stuff you have going on. Music City, toys and collectibles, blowing up like a freaking rocket and uh, opening up a retail store on May 1st. Uh, but give us all the information about that. Yep, that is right. May the 1st is our grand opening of our new retail location here in Middle Tennessee, about 35 miles east of Nashville in a little town called Watertown. We're going to be at 101 West Main Street right off the downtown square. And uh, we got Dan the Beast Severin, MMA and pro wrestling legend coming in. He's going to be meeting fans and signing autographs that weekend in store. Uh, we're going to be doing monthly signings. We're going to be we're going to be the wrestling universe of the South. That's my uh, that's my <laughs> that's my blueprint there. That's my goal. So uh, yeah, it's going to be fun. It's something we've worked up to for a long time. And 2020, with all of its challenges, uh, with no conventions, as you mentioned earlier, you know, kind of allowed us to refocus. Uh, on our online business and we had a monstrous year record year so it really set us up for the opportunity to move into retail so uh so here we go may 1st uh, it's all going down in watertown it's going to be uh, it's going to be a big weekend we got uh, just heard from a customer in ohio just a little bit ago so i've got, i think i'm up to 11 or 12 states now of uh, folks that are traveling in to uh, to shop with us that weekend so we're looking forward to it it's going to be a pretty big deal so we're excited 
Hey, if certain things could f- uh, fall in the right direction, maybe uh, you can add Virginia to the list. Uh, but... <laughs> oh, there you go. You can, you can be the representative of the Commonwealth there. <laughs> but that means, you know, some things have to uh, to come into, uh, you know, alignment with the stars. Uh, yeah. But no, man, very proud of you. Very cool to see what's going on. Oh, and also potentially convention at some point down the road, correct, this year? Uh, if, uh, you know, fingers crossed and, and conventions are allowed to happen. Yeah, yeah, we we uh, we actually just a couple weeks ago acquired the rights to a convention that had been in the planning stages here for a while, and the uh, the the investment team behind it had grown leery, as as one might expect with everything that happened in twenty twenty. So uh, we ended up uh, purchasing the rights to uh, to use that name and all the talent contracts of the folks that they had reached agreements with, and they're going to be appearing at our store at various times throughout the rest of the year. As soon as we can work out uh, the dates and stuff, you know, a lot of guys still aren't, aren't wanting to commit to dates far out. Some still don't want to travel at all. So it's kind of still, you know, it's still challenging, even though things are opening back up somewhat, uh, there's still a lot of challenges there, but yeah, we're, we're planning on uh, music city wrestle fest at some point when uh, we can all get together and, and, uh, be safe and not have to wear masks for photo ops and all that kind of stuff. So uh, hoping, hoping soon, uh, if not uh, this late this year, hopefully next year, at least that we can be able to do something here and bring uh, Nashville and the middle Tennessee area. It's first real wrestling convention. So we're excited about that opportunity too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's hope so. And let's hope it, uh, it gets going for you and everything, you know, in the right direction and please the website and the social media before we say goodbye. Yep, our website under development uh, should be up soon. It'll be musiccitytoys.biz. That's B-I-Z dot biz because toys are our business. And uh, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Music City Toys. We do live monthly uh, Facebook sales with moving a lot of merchandise, a lot of cool collectibles. If you're into wrestling, check us out there and uh, give us a follow, interact with us, and uh Everybody come on out May the 1st. It's going to be a big, uh, big fun time for everybody. And make sure you tell them uh, New Generation Declassified uh, sent you with uh, That's right. That's all right. the That's information right. you've ever wanted about different uh, German released <laughs> WWF magazines. And then people, that's going to be the first thing. Somebody walks through the door, they're going to be like, hey, you got those freaking crushed Valentines? Because I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I'm dying right. for a couple of them. You'll be like, no, nah. they're going to be like, ah, you yeah. suck. That's yeah, terrible. yeah. The only one I'm missing is Jack Gonzalez. I drove all the way here from Arizona. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, I hope that's the case. So uh, best of luck to you, and I appreciate you coming on. If you want to follow me, it's at Chad EMB on Instagram and the Twitter. Uh, my website is ibexclusives.com. There you can find all the information about the signings that I have coming up. Uh, mostly baseball, but still you'll find something there that is uh, worth your while. And for all the podcasts, it's tmptempire.com. Everything under the TMPT umbrella sits there. And also russobrand.com for the Triple Threat podcast and the uh, all the podcasts we've got under there as well. And, of course, the Queen of Extreme Francine on Patreon, patreon.com slash Francine podcast. Uh, simulcast later in the week on Creative Control, but on Creative Control, you will not get our extras, which make the uh, the Patreon investment all the more uh, worth your while. Uh, say that twice. I hate saying things twice, but I will do that there. And that's uh, about enough out of me. Let's uh, say goodbye for this week. We'll see what we talk about next week on next week's show. 
Sir, so for my buddy here, Chad, the other Chad is here to say we will catch you on the flip side. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.